Before we get started, a quick note. This podcast features explicit language and may not be suitable for younger listeners. And if you're just joining us, this is a continuing story, and we recommend going back and listening to the previous episodes first. Are you recording this phone call right now? Is that okay? So that means we're working together again? From Todd and my standpoint, I don't think we ever stopped working together. Do you feel differently? Yeah, I think I'm a little confused. Things did not end well the last time co-producer Todd Luoto and I spoke to Bobby. He was convinced we were trying to sabotage his efforts to tell his story, that we were, in effect, forcing him out of the project. For weeks, we hadn't spoken with him. In the interim, Reuben had returned home, having run out of leads in the search for his missing partner, Mark Sims. And then, unexpectedly, Reuben got in touch with all of us to let us know he would be returning to Portland with a fresh lead. So Todd and I are going to pick him up from the airport, and we were thinking we could either pick you up before, or if that doesn't work for your schedule, we could come get you after we get Reuben at the airport. So, you know, and then we can kind of proceed to Gresham together as a group. Gresham, a city located roughly a dozen miles east of Portland. And what was taking us out there? Reuben had received a parking citation in the mail from Multnomah County Circuit Court. At first, he thought perhaps he'd unknowingly incurred a citation while in Oregon. But upon looking at the license plate, he realized it was Mark's car. And what's more, the citation provided a street address in Gresham. Now it was from over a month prior, but it was confirmation at least that Mark was out there, somewhere. What are your thoughts about that? Mm. Well, I got a few things going on tomorrow. Okay. Um, I'll be free a little later around uh, maybe 11.30. Shut up! No. Bobby's nonchalance about the whole thing was a bit puzzling, considering it was Reuben who'd first contacted him with the news. The two of them had kept in touch even after Reuben had left Portland, with Bobby continuing the search for Mark in his absence and providing regular updates. Where, where do you want us to come get you? Coin Kingdom. Uh, that might be a little bit out of the way, given where we're headed. Is there any place closer to town, maybe, that we can get you? Nope. Are you doing a, are you doing a tour tomorrow? Nope. I'm sorry. No, you're not doing the tour tomorrow, or no, there's no place we can pick you up that's closer? Uh, no to both. I'm not inviting you guys to my home. The truth of the matter was that was exactly what we were hoping to accomplish by inviting Bobby along and he saw right through our plan. Ever since we'd first met him, he'd been cagey about disclosing where he lived, or even describing his living conditions. Did he have a roommate? We seriously doubted it. We always met him in a public place, and the one time we suggested interviewing him in his home, early on, when we first began corresponding, he got so paranoid he came close to calling the whole thing off. So naturally, we were pretty curious. From, from we were just thinking of making it easy, as easy on you as possible. You know, we're, we're not, trying to cause any issues with this. There's just, no issue. I just uh, have a better sense of our working relationship now, and I just have to take some steps to protect myself, and uh, that's one of them. I don't, I don't want you guys knowing where I live. All right, man. Well, I hope, 
hope you sleep well, and we'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye. That night, Todd and I drove out to Gresham. We didn't necessarily have expectations. We just wanted to check out the area. We cruised up and down the street, noted on the citation. Is that? No. Oh wait, I think I see the car. You see it up there, on the left? Mark's Prius was still parked there. Coming up, what was Mark doing in Gresham? And did it have anything to do with Polybius? I'm John Frechette. This is The Polybius Conspiracy, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. Are you more concerned about what you will find or what you won't find? You know, you come this far, you just want to know. That's Reuben speaking about Mark as the four of us, Reuben, Bobby, Todd, and myself, headed from Coin Kingdom toward our destination. To the best of Reuben's memory, Mark had no personal ties to Gresham beyond its proximity to Portland. Hey, I, I hope we find him and uh, he says he never wants to see me again, you know. You could accept that? Reuben nodded. Bobby's chilly demeanor from the previous night's call persisted on the drive out. He was uncharacteristically silent, avoiding eye contact with all three of us until Mark's Prius came into view. And then his face lit up. It's there. That's his car. It's pretty dirty. What was immediately obvious was that Mark's car hadn't been moved for some time. The windshield was totally caked with dirt. Reuben brought a spare key with him, so we were able to get inside and have a look. Is there anything? Garbage. The footwells were littered with food wrappers and empty soda cans. Full tank of gas. Check the trunk. Mark's car was parked directly out front of a cozy bungalow, tucked away from the street, perfect for someone looking for a little seclusion. And while Todd and I certainly had our own thoughts about next steps, we felt it was best to let Reuben dictate the plays. See if anyone's home. It might be better for us to just wait and see who shows up here. I mean, we're kind of giving away our, our hand, you know? It doesn't do any harm to knock on the door, right? We're here. We're coming with you. Hold up one second. A short path led from the gate to the front porch, where a toppled bird feeder lay. The home itself appeared unoccupied. Lights off, curtains drawn. We approached the front door with Reuben, as Bobby discreetly snooped around back. Does anyone live here? Hello? As we stood there, hoping someone would answer, Bobby called out from the back of the house. What? Are you in? Bobby! We rounded the home to find the kitchen window shattered, the back door standing ajar. Bobby had already charged ahead into the home. For a moment, we had to wonder, did he just break in? There was a pungent stench emanating from inside the house. Spoiled food. 
just stop with it. Should we call the police? That would have been the obvious thing to do, of course, and Todd and I completely agreed with Ruben, but nothing we'd come to expect from Bobby was ever the obvious thing. He'd already disappeared into the house, presumably searching for Mark or any sign of him. And then... <coughs> Hello? Hey, is this his writing? Don't touch anything. Is that Mark's handwriting? Bobby had returned with a leather-bound notebook in hand. Just over there. This is Mark's writing. Ruben would later explain that he recognized it as Mark's sobriety journal, something both of them utilized as part of their individual recoveries. Daily entries of Mark's thoughts and musings transitioned abruptly to blank pages, then a string of seemingly random numbers, culminating in a name. Frank Sellers. Frank Seller, it's a phone number. Hey, what are you doing? It's evidence, man. Bobby had taken out his phone and was photographing the pages of the journal. Whatever his interpretation, for Ruben, it was evidence of something tragic. Bullshit, this doesn't mean anything. He's, he's fucked up. Ruben's worst fear, Mark had likely relapsed. I should call the police. No, don't, don't call the police. Just go outside, get some air, I man. Can't. Are you okay? That's me asking Ruben. Yeah, but I don't, know, I don't know how long he's been gone. I, I mean, he was here. He's not here now. We need the cops at this point. All right, fellas. I'm going to take an Uber out of here. I will talk, talk Bobby, hang out. to you guys later. Not get involved with police. True to his word, Bobby did not stick around. When we headed back to the street not more than two minutes later, he was already gone not even long enough for a car to have picked him up. There was a lot that was strange about this situation. The fact that it was Bobby who discovered the broken window, Bobby who ventured ahead inside the house, and Bobby who found the notebook. But given the circumstances, it didn't feel like the right time to confront Reuben. We wanted to avoid having to explain the presence of a crew with boom mics, so Todd and I stashed the recording gear and waited in the car while Reuben spoke with the police. When they arrived, he gave them the broad strokes, that Mark's car was the reason we were there. We'd come to learn that no illegal substances were found on the premises, and later, the homeowner would verify that no personal property had been taken or damaged, aside from the window. So a potentially missing person, Mark, instead became a person of interest in a rather minor case of vandalism. As Reuben had experienced before, the fact that Mark had inarguably left of his own volition complicated matters from a legal perspective. What we did learn, Mark had rented the home for a month through Airbnb. The owner, who declined to go on record, greeted Mark upon arrival. So, more confirmation that he did in fact travel to Portland. And that was about all that we learned, aside from the fact that he clearly would not be getting his deposit back. But we still had the journal, and with it, a lead. Yeah, Mark kept this journal religiously every day he wrote in it I, i'd never read it before you came and share it with you i i never asked I, I just feel weird reading this mark's journal entries first became sporadic around december of 2014. and then the next one isn't until late january that's right around the time when we started having our troubles 
In March, he went away on his business trip and never came back. It's then that the entries stopped entirely. Until the end, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. Ruben was referring to the numbers that concluded the journal, ending in an Oregon phone number, area code 541. Is it Frank Seller a person, like, like Peter Sellers? Or is it, I don't know that anybody ever calls their dealer or connect a seller. We got Frank on the phone to find out. Hey Frank, you're on the phone with uh with I'm my name is John. I'm here working with Ruben and trying to find Mark. And I, I appreciate that this is a, a weird call for you to be receiving, but Yeah, now it's a now it's a party line. Like who are you? Like what like what's going on? Try explaining the circumstances in which we found ourselves to someone in under three minutes. Suffice to say, when we called the number in Mark's notebook. Frank's patience for our questions quickly wore thin. Yeah, I mean, I know a Mark. I know probably five Marks. This particular Mark uh, probably was living in, in Gresham. Does this sound familiar? Does this ring any bells for you? Mark in Gresham. Okay. What, what do you need from me? We needed him to answer the question. Why would somebody have your phone number, Frank, in a notebook? I mean, somebody gave him my phone number. He wrote it down. And why would somebody want to write down your number, Frank? They have my phone number so they can call me. The conversation went on and on like this, like some deranged version of a who's on first routine. Maybe he didn't use the name oh, Mark. No offense, buddy. You're calling me. No, you I... got my number and my name from a notebook right. or whatever. I mean, this sound, you sound crazy. He didn't much seem like a drug dealer but his evasiveness certainly fueled our suspicion that Frank Seller might be selling something of an illicit nature. I'm not looking to get you in any kind of trouble, okay? Um, you know, if, if you sell drugs... Uh, what the fuck are you talking about? I buy and sell video games. Like video arcade games. games. Yeah, like arcade games or, or console games, things like that. Difficult to find games. Say that again? Like. Collector's items. Yeah, like old arcade games from the 80s. You know, stuff like that. And were any of these games ever housed in an unmarked black cabinet? As far as black cabinets go, those are usually just painted over old cabinets, and I'll get those two or three at a time sometimes, and I'll just put them up on Craig's, and collectors will come and pick them up, or once in a while uh, I'll chop one up and throw it away because nobody wants it. But yeah, I mean, I get black cabinets all the time. Well, how about in the last month that you delivered to Gresham? Yeah, Come on, probably. man. I mean, I, 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 uh... Again, with the evasiveness. The funny thing was Frank didn't just hang up on us. It was almost as though he was carefully dodging our questions to prod more information from us, like he wanted to know how much we knew before confirming anything. Yeah, I went up to Gresham, you know, probably three weeks ago, maybe a month, and delivered two different games out there. One was, uh... Defender to a guy, and the other one was uh, Black Cabinet. So okay, okay. You're talking about. Do you recall what this person looked like? Yeah, he's just a guy. I mean, he's a uh, you know. Fifty. Yeah, he was. Yeah, nostalgia age. You you actually brought it to a house? Yeah, I delivered. I was going up. He wanted me to deliver it, and I was going that way anyway. I told him he had to wait a few days. He was fine with that. I put it aside, and then I drove it up over there. But when we pressed him for more details... It's just a simple transaction. I drop off the game, they give me money, bye-bye, that's it. Despite the frustrating nature of the phone call, Frank's story suggested an alternative to the narrative we'd all settled on. What if Mark hadn't relapsed? What if, as Bobby had asserted all along, his disappearance was somehow connected to the hunt for a Polybius cabinet? 
Certainly, that's what it seemed like everyone we spoke to wanted us to believe. Frank obtained the game from a self-storage auction. Yeah, I think it was over in Seaside. That would be Seaside, Oregon. When someone doesn't pay their rent, the storage facility has the right to auction off the contents of the locker. What's interesting about these auctions is typically bidders aren't allowed inside to dig around. They place their bids based on what they see, and the auctions might only last a matter of minutes. As someone who deals in nostalgia, Frank very occasionally gets lucky at these auctions in hunting down classic arcade games. A couple of them will be like a Ms. Pack or like uh, Asteroids or whatever, and then there's a couple in there that they're not worth anything. And when it came to this particular game, Frank could only confirm it would never boot up and required more care and attention than he was willing to give it. With delivery included, he unloaded it to Mark, or as he referred to him, the guy in Gresham, for a couple hundred bucks in cash, figuring any buyer would just be using the game for spare parts. Was it possible that Frank didn't know he was sitting on a mythic game from over three decades ago? And even if you did stumble across Polybius, how would you know you'd found it? No two photos are ever the same, no description entirely consistent. Even Bobby's recollection of the gameplay is abstract at best. So say an alleged Polybius cabinet fell into your lap, how would you go about vetting it? If someone were to walk up and say, hey, I've got this machine and I think it's this poly whatever. Immediately, of course, your, your curiosity is going to be piqued, if only to see A, how good the fake is, or B, yeah, you know, they may be really onto something. That's Clay Cowgill, one of the owners of the Portland Retrocade Ground Control, who we interviewed in episode three. As someone who's made a career of restoring and modifying classic arcade games, we figured if anyone would know what to look for when it comes to Polybius, it would be him. Um, you can generally look at any components and sort of know the era that they're coming from. It would be suspicious if you saw anything that was too recently manufactured. If there's any paper, is it appropriately aged? Is the wood too clean looking? Is it completely free of water damage or any expansion from humidity? If it gets past that layer of, of scrutiny, then you probably have to really start diving into pulling some of the chips and reading out code and certainly it would be a, a very expensive machine if it was in any way shape or form deemed to be legitimate. Back in episode three, Clay told us that he wouldn't have been surprised to learn that Polybius was real and in fact some of the more outlandish tales of the game's side effects could all be explained by the emerging technology of the era. But what we wanted to know was were there any case studies similar to Polybius of games once thought to be mythic that later proved to be real? Ones that came up in particular were Army Battlezone. You know, we know it exists out there. There was this thing that Atari did for the military and it was kind of a unicorn. Um, and that was true for a number of games. Uh, Zector, uh, a vector game from Sega Gremlin was one that you, know, you never thought you'd actually see. It might not actually been out there. You know, one day, some of these unicorns started to show up in the flesh. Circuit boards that run the game out of Zector appears. Okay, well, that was a real one. Years later, Army Battlezone, the, the Bradley Trainer, shows up. Okay, that's, a, that's another one. So all of a sudden, these things that were just myths are concrete examples in the real world. And as we began calling storage facilities in Seaside, Oregon, we had to wonder whether or not Frank's game would follow suit. Are you familiar with a game called uh, Polybius or Polybius? Here I am speaking with Frank again, after Ruben and I had paid a visit to the managers of every storage facility in Seaside. You mean that Urban Legends? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in the arcade, obviously. Yeah, of course. And is it possible that Mark mentioned that 
to you at all in the course of your conversation with him? Yeah, look, yeah. So he... Turns out, Frank's story wasn't quite as innocuous as advertised. After a visit to every storage facility in Seaside, we could definitively say that none had hosted any auctions in the past six months. So this mysterious arcade cabinet that Frank supposedly stumbled across and sold for parts was actually something he assembled to bait overeager collectors. Look, I'm not a bad guy. He, he wanted... He didn't say you were a bad guy. You're pretty confusing you. The real story? He saw the cabinet and, you know, he contacted me and he asked some questions about it, you know, just, but they got really specific, right? Ad, so, ad, ad that, wait, to clarify the ad, you're talking about the ad that you posted on Craigslist. Yeah, he gets all excited and it's clear that he really is looking for this game and he wants it. And he saw the ad and he thought it might be a Polybius. So I'm like, yeah, maybe it is. I told him I didn't know. I didn't say, yes, it is. I never said that. <laughs> so suddenly he's offering me all kinds of money for it, right? So yeah, okay. I said, sure, 1500 bucks. So he gave me 1500 bucks for a Polybius, <laughs> you know? That's Polybius in air quotes. But the strange thing is, even if Mark was convinced Frank was in possession of a legitimate Polybius cabinet, why would he shell out $1,500 for one that didn't even boot up? I mean, there are some games that get $2,000, $3,000 because they're super rare. And even if you get the original cabinet, even if it's been painted over or whatever, in the collector market, that's worth something. So if you think you have a game you know, that's an original and you can feel like you can get the other parts, you might pay a lot of money for a cabinet. I'll take 1500 for this. Doesn't that kind of behavior run a little counter to like what you're used to dealing with? Well, uh, I mean, if you want to know the truth, I think he's got some issues. There it was, the confirmation Ruben was dreading. According to Frank, when Mark greeted him on the day of the delivery... He was charged up. I mean, he was intense. Frank figured it had to be meth and did not want to spend an extra second there. So he asked Mark to see the money. Yeah, of course, of course. Runs in the house. He's in there for like five or ten minutes. I'm waiting outside. And uh, so I wander in the garage. He's got a bunch of other cabinets, a bunch of black cabinets, kind of like the one that I'm bringing him. And I'm looking at those. How many were there? Yeah, you know, there were like five, I think there were five or six cabinets, I think five. And, uh, you know, they were all similar. They were all painted black. Some of them had all the parts, some didn't. Is that unusual for you to find a cabinet that you don't recognize? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's a lot of junk out there, and it, it's a lot of newer stuff, like later 80s and stuff like that. But the, the, these looked older, and it seemed a little weird. I mean, they were solid cabinets, and um, I was trying to turn one around to get a look in the back. And I heard, like, you know, he was yelling with somebody else, and then there's, like, a dog, and the dog's barking, and somebody's yelling at the dog. And so, then, I'm sorry, so there was somebody else in the house with him? Yeah, they were, like, yelling at each other. Did, did you ever see any of them? No, because I was over by the door trying to figure out what was going on. I was going to peek my head in, and, you know, all of a sudden he came charging out and was like, okay, okay, I got the money. So, okay, the game Frank delivered was a fake, but there were five or six others in the garage that were at very least possibilities. Had Mark taken up residence in Gresham with the sole intention of collecting every mysterious unmarked arcade cabinet on the market in the hope that one of them might prove real? 
And if he was using again, were the drugs feeding his obsession, or was it the other way around? And then there was the shouting match Frank overheard from the garage. When we asked ourselves who might have been Mark's opponent, it only took us a moment to come up with a possibility. Well, I got a few things going on tomorrow. Okay. Um, I'll be free a little later around uh, maybe 11.30. Shut up! No. So were we grasping for connections where there were none? like real conspiracy theorists? Or was the barking dog a link to Bobby? There's more. I'll just say that I, I do occasionally see Bobby talking with people that I really don't understand what business they'd have with each other if it wasn't transactional. That's Dylan Reef. You may remember him from episode one as a key member of Portland's retrocade scene. Downtown here in Portland, Oregon, we have a pretty large transient population. You know, some are mentally ill and some we have a housing crisis right now. There's a lot of different reasons, but honestly, a lot of it also comes down to drug use and drug dependency. You know, number one is meth. Number two is heroin. Downtown Portland is a nexus in this theory, home to ground control, the city's premier retrocade, and a destination on Bobby's Polybius tour. For a while now, we've been wondering how Bobby supported himself. Certainly the tour wasn't doing it. But Bobby always evaded our questions, just like he always demurred when we offered to pick him up at home. We had lots of theories about why. We'd heard he was still living with his elderly mother, that he didn't want the crazies from his walking tour knowing where he lived. But Dylan's claims, while secondhand, offered a new possibility. I have heard from someone that I am fairly close with that they did visibly see a handoff of some sort. So I do know people that have made that have made the claim that they have literally seen it happen. To be fair to Bobby, there is absolutely no proof to back up the claim Dylan is making, and none of his friends would go on record. There's a lot of things to like bullshit or talk about Bobby, but it, it, this seems so specific that it, it would be odd to me that it, there is not like a basis in the reality of the situation. Todd and I wrestled with whether or not to report this for some time. What ultimately swayed us? There were just too many coincidences. Mark and his history of drug abuse, the mystery person at the house in Gresham, the barking dog, Dylan's story. Of course, coincidences are often just that. But what if Mark's connection to Bobby wasn't purely about Polybius? What if they'd met under a completely different set of circumstances? What if there was more to Bobby's history than we realized? There was only one way we were going to find out. It was time to confront Bobby about our suspicions. This is Bobby, leave a message. But Bobby had disappeared. The Polybius Conspiracy is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. The series is produced by Todd Luoto and myself, and executive produced by Julie Shapiro. Original artwork for each episode is by Jin Lim. Music for this episode was composed by Restricted, Rishikesh Hirway, and Chris Fitzpatrick. You can learn more about all of them and see bios for everyone we interview by visiting radiotopia.fm slash showcase. I'm John Frechette. The mystery of Polybius continues next week.